Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Well, it seemed like a really normal day. In fact, most people woke up on that day going to work, going to school. Temperature was really nice. The weather was clear. But what most people did not know on that morning of September the 11th, 2001, is that America was actually under attack. There was a foreign enemy who was plotting and planning for months and months and months to attack the United States of America. And as a result of not expecting this attack, 2,996 people died on that day or as a result of that day. It's hard to believe that tomorrow will be 22 years since that dreadful day. You could say the same thing about December the 7th, 1941 on the island of Oahu at Pearl Harbor, where in a 90-minute span, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and as a result, 2,403 Americans lost their lives. It was a day that President Roosevelt said would live in infamy. You see, that's the thing about surprise attacks. Nobody expects it, which is why they are so successful. So today, we're starting a three-week series called not today, Satan. And this has nothing to do with Grandparents' Day. They are not connected, okay? Not connected. And also, I just feel like I need to say, it has nothing to do with the results of last night's Alabama game. Now, I will say that in all of the images about Satan from ancient times, he generally had horns. You make the connection, Bama fans. I'm just leaving it out there for you to be a little more upset about it. We're starting this series because what you and I need to remember every day is that we are under attack. We have an enemy who is out to get us. You've probably heard him referred to as Satan or maybe the devil, but what you need to know is that he wasn't always that guy. In fact, when he was first created, he was created as this archangel named Lucifer, whose name means the shining one. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 28, it describes him as the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Every kind of precious stone covered him. He was perfect in all of his ways from the day he was created. And he was in the Garden of Eden, and he walked with God until one day. Until one day... He revolted. He was filled with violence and pride, and he rejected the grace and love of God. And he rose up to try to overthrow God, but he was unsuccessful. And as a result, he was cast out of heaven, down to the ground, down to the earth. And he has one mission with the rest of his time, because he's a loser. He fought a battle and he lost. And as a result, he's awaiting his eternal fate in hell. In the meantime, what he is out to do is to hurt God. He cannot destroy God. He tried to overthrow and failed. So now his goal is to hurt God by destroying as many of God's children as possible. And he does that through something called sin. 
and he's really, really good at his job. In fact, he attacks the believer in different ways, primarily in three ways. One, as the deceiver, we'll talk about today. Number two, as the destroyer, we'll talk about that next week. And number three, as the accuser, we'll talk about that in two weeks. And he's really, really good at his job. In fact, he's been plaguing God's people ever since Genesis chapter 3, an account we'll look at this morning. And we need to understand who he is and what his tactics are so that we can be prepared, so that we don't walk out of our doors every day thinking life is great and that we are living in a peaceful world. We are living in a spiritual battle every day. And when you have that kind of mindset and that kind of framework, it changes how you think about the events that are happening in your life and around our world. And it's critically important for us to realize that we have an enemy who is out to attack us and to destroy us. And one of his, his tactics that I want us to think about today is by attacking our minds with lies. That's why he's called the great deceiver, because he wants to attack our minds with lies in order for us to question the goodness of God. Because if he can get us to question the goodness of God, then we can easier disobey the will of God. We'll talk about that as we get into our message. There's a couple of verses I want us to look at real quick as we get into talking about this creature that we read about in the scriptures called Satan. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus refers to the devil, Satan. He says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So if your native language is English, Satan's native language is lying. If he's talking, most likely it's a lie that's coming out of his mouth. Because according to Jesus, that's his native language. In Revelation chapter 12, it describes him as that great dragon who was thrown out of heaven, the ancient serpent, that's a reference to Genesis 3 here in just a moment, who is called the devil. That's a term that means the adversary and the Satan, the one who opposes, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. You see, he's not alone. He just happens to be the leader of this force of evil, these other spiritual beings who rebelled with him, who were filled with pride to try to overthrow heaven. And as Daniel read to us, it's a reminder that we're in this spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, not against humans. Humans are not the ultimate problem. Humans are corrupted by evil. As humans, we give in to the temptations from the deceiver. We buy the lies. But the ultimate problem in our world, that no law, no legislation, and no election could ever fix, is because we're in a spiritual battle with an enemy who disguises himself as an angel of light, deceiving the minds not only of unbelievers, but let's be honest, church, of believers as well. So this morning, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. I'll have it on the screen. I'd love for you to join me if you've got a copy of God's Word. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, have been created. They've been placed in the garden. And they've been given this divine blessing to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, to subdue all of creation. 
They're placed in this garden with all of these fruit trees and they've been told they can freely eat from all of the trees. There's just this one tree in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, a weird tree with a really long name that God said, don't eat from it because in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Well, in, cha- in chapter three, the narrative kind of shifts. It's like if you were watching a movie, when you get to chapter three, that dark uh, thematic music kind of comes in softly where you notice there's a scene change here. Something is different. The adversary has come into the picture. The plot is twisting, and it says, now the serpent, he was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. It wants us to know that this being that we're about to meet is an animal, a beast of the field. Yet there's something different about this animal because he speaks. And it's not like animals talked in the Bible. There's only two examples of that happening, and both are odd. Have you ever had an animal speak to you? Please answer no. If that answer is yes... And I'm not talking about those demonic birds that talk, okay? They're of the devil too. We're talking about like having an actual conversation with an animal. That should be odd because that is odd. It's an anomaly. And so the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say? Did he really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? You see, he's trying to place doubt in her mind about what God said. And she said, you know, God told us that we could eat from any of the trees in the garden. We could eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And don't touch it lest you die. Now, here's what I find really interesting. And I don't know if this is a big deal or not. Maybe not to you. I think it's fascinating. The original command that God gave to Adam that he was charged with giving to his wife was you may eat freely. That's a key word in the, in the first time this command, this language was given. You can eat freely. But what do you notice about what the woman has spoken back to the serpent? What word does she leave out? She left out the word freely. In fact, she added in some extra language about not touching it that God never said. And here's what I think about. If you're going to go out to lunch today, and you go to lunch, and it's one of those, you order it, and then they bring it to you, When you eat everything on your plate, if you want more, and we're not talking about the chips at the Mexican restaurant, I'm talking about what they bring you on your plate. If you want more, what do you have to do? You have to pay more, right? You can't just be like, hey, can I get another burger included? The answer is going to be no, unless you pay more. But if you go to one of those buffets and you walk in, it's like Genesis chapter 2. You may eat freely. Yeah, it's very different right? You can have everything that you want. And what I find so fascinating is when she gives this command back to the serpent, she's dropped off the most optimistic portion of the original statement made by God. You can eat versus you can eat freely. They sound very different. You can already start to see her mind turning And all the tempter does is place a little bit of doubt. And then he just flat denies the word of God. He says, oh, you're not going to die. 
In fact, God knows when you eat of that fruit, your eyes are going to be open because he's withholding something from you, something that you need, something that will make your life better. In fact, what will happen in the day you eat of it is you're going to be just like God, knowing good from evil. You're going to be on the same level as God in the day you eat of that fruit. And don't you want to be on the same level as God? And what's so fascinating is that the very thing he's tempting her with is the very thing he struck out trying to do. The reason why Satan was cast out of heaven is not just because he was a bad dude. It's because he tried to be not like God, but greater than God. And there is no one greater than God. In fact, the scriptures would say there is no one comparable to God. Yet that's what he's trying to achieve. And now he's tempting her with the very same thing he failed at doing. But what she failed to recognize, what the man and the woman failed to recognize, is that the very thing they're tempted with is the very thing they already are. When you backtrack to chapter 1, they were made in the very image of God. They were made in the likeness of God, meaning they were already like God. There was nothing that fruit could offer them that would improve their life whatsoever. There was nothing about that fruit that they could eat that would make them any more like God than they already were in their originally created state. Yet he's been tempting us with the same lie ever since. You can be like God. We've just, in modern times, reworded it. You can be your own God. It's your life. It's your body. It's your desires. Whatever you think you are today, that's what you are. Biology doesn't matter. Common sense doesn't matter. If you think it, it's true for you. There's no more thing, there's no such thing as truth, definitely not absolute truth. It's whatever you define as truth for you. It's your desires. It's your life. Shouldn't you take care of those desires? Shouldn't you give in? You were created as a person with desires. Never deny yourself of what you desire because gods don't deny themselves of desires. That's the lie you're being sold. And let's just be honest. Can we be honest today? You're a terrible God. Terrible You're terrible at running your life. I know that's harsh to hear, but can you admit it? You've done a terrible job. Now, I'm not standing up here as the person who's figured it out. I've done a terrible job too. When I take charge, it just turns into destruction. It all goes off the rails. It turns into complete chaos because I'm a terrible God and so are you. And so what we need is the one in whose image we've been made. But Satan will not sit by and allow that to happen. So, he's successful. The woman looks at the fruit of the tree, sees that it's good for food, a delight to the eyes, and was desirable to make her wise. She took of its fruit, she ate it, she gave to her husband, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. Here's our big idea today. When you start to question the goodness of God, it's easier to disobey the will of God. How many times have you, been in, have you been deceived into thinking that if you just compromise just a little bit, it'll make you be accepted by the group of people that you're around? How many people have been deceived into thinking if they'll just give in to whatever it is that they're feeling and desiring, that will truly satisfy only to be left with destruction and chaos from the decisions made the day before? 
How many of us have been deceived into thinking that if we can just achieve a certain level of financial security and prosperity, then everything else will be okay, only to realize that Notorious B.I.G. was a profound theologian when he uttered that famous phrase, mo money, mo problems. How many people have been deceived into thinking it's just one drink? On and on and on the list goes of the great deceiver getting us to give in to our desires, filling us with pride, fueling our ego, making us think it's about me, it's my life, and I've got to run it. He's really good at his job. There's a couple of things that I want us to think about this morning so that we can fight back against his attacks. Because that's the first way he attacks us. He comes out of our mind with lies to get us to question the goodness of God. Because when you begin to question the goodness of God and you begin to think God is withholding something from you, it's easier to disobey the will of God. So, what can we do? First off, keep in mind, we are fighting from victory, not for victory. You're finding yourself in a daily battle that's in a war that's already been won. Jesus Christ, when he gave his life on the cross, accomplished the victory. In fact, I love what it says in 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote, if the ruler of this age, talking about Satan, if the forces of evil had understood what was going to happen when Jesus died on the cross, there is no way they would have ever allowed the Lord of glory to be crucified. When Jesus went to the cross, the forces of hell thought they were winning the war. They thought we are going to kill the Son of God and we are going to be victorious. But it was one of those backdoor wins where all of a sudden out of nowhere, you're like, what in the world just happened? Who could have dreamed that death could result in victory because none of the forces of evil could have ever imagined that three days later Jesus would walk out of the tomb. And because of that, we gather as people who are not fighting for victory, but we are fighting from victory. We are already fighting in a place of victory. Now, listen to me. The battle is real. The battle is real, right? Some of us, are, if not all of us, are involved in a battle in the flesh that is waging itself like crazy. There are days and moments that you do really, really good and you're righteous and holy. And then there are days that you're the complete opposite, totally serving yourself, giving in to desires, unrighteous and unholy, doing all the things you know God doesn't want you to do. Feeling that battle being fought with in you. You're like what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 where he said, there are things that I want to do that I know that are good and I just can't seem to do them. But man, there are things that I know I shouldn't do and that's the very things that I'm doing. And he feels this conflict that's pulling him within. It's a battle that's being fought in a dimension that we cannot see and it's a battle being fought in an area in our heart that we definitely can feel where you're feeling pulled and you're in this battle and you're trying to do right and you're trying to serve God, but man, Satan is so good and sin looks so enjoyable and tempting and you're feeling those desires and it's just fighting back and forth. Just remember, you're fighting from a place of victory. It's almost like in old times when they would fight wars before they had like cell phones and social media where you could say, hey, the war's been won, stop the fighting now. It could take weeks and months for word to make it to the farthest battles being fought to say, hey, they surrendered. It's almost like we're living in that time, still fighting this battle, 
while the war has already been won. So, because of that, you need to remember that the Word of God is one of your greatest weapons. How do you fight against lies? You have to have truth. Where do we find truth? It's in the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, it tells us starting out in verse 1 that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That's an insanely long period of time. And then the Bible gives the greatest understatement of all time. You ready for this? It says, and he was hungry. Yeah, no joke, Matthew. If I skip lunch, I am not pleasant to be around. I get a little hangry. I get a little weak. My hands get a little shaky. You do not want to be around me if I skip the most important meal of the day. If Jesus was hungry after 40 days, I can't even imagine what that would be like. If I go four hours, I'm ready for something to eat. And I don't even want to go that long without putting food in my body. And it says he was hungry. And then who shows up when he's at his weakest moment physically? The deceiver. The tempter, and he comes in with three attacks against Jesus, the same three attacks you and I face on a daily basis. The first way he attacks him is through attacking the lust of his flesh. He said, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you just take these rocks and turn them into bread? That's a real temptation when you've been fasting for 40 days. Did Jesus have that ability? Absolutely. If he can turn water into wine, he can turn rocks into yeast rolls. But he said... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He uses the word of God to fight back against the attacks of the enemy. The second thing that Satan comes at him with is he takes him to the top of the temple. and He says, hey, if you're the son of God, just cast yourself off the temple. And, and then he starts quoting scripture. He says his angels will give charge to protect him so that he doesn't even fash, dash his foot against a stone, which tells us Satan knows scripture probably better than you and I do. And he'll use it against us and against God's people. And he's attacking his pride. If you're trying to create a movement where you want people to follow you, what better way than to perform one of the most amazing miracles ever seen? Could you imagine if Jesus swan dives off the top of the temple and here come these angels swooping down, flying down and rescue him? Who's not going to believe he's the son of God? And he starts out with, if you are the son of God, placing a little doubt, then prove it. What's the worst thing you can say to somebody who's got a lot of testosterone flowing in your body? I dare you. Oh, don't dare me, right? It's what he's doing to Jesus. I dare you. And Jesus said, no. And he quotes scripture. You don't put the Lord God to the test. Satan's got one more up his sleeve. He comes back at Jesus and he says, hey, he takes him to this place and he looks out at all the kingdoms of the world says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give all of this to you. Don't you want to be the king? I'll give all of this to you. And Jesus says, no, you worship the Lord God only and him shall you serve. Jesus uses scripture to combat the lies of the enemy. There's this beautiful line in Psalm 119 that says, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, in order for the word to come out of your mouth, it's got to first be hidden in your heart. 
It's why we must daily be in the word of God. Not just so that we can grow in knowledge, but so that we can be prepared when the attack from the enemy comes. Because the last thing you want to do is when Satan comes with attack, you go, oh my goodness, let me find that book, chapter, verse. Let me search through and find it. The word needs to just flow out of your mind, off of your tongue, as an attack to the enemy. May we be people of the word because the word of God is one of our greatest weapons in the battle. The last thing I want to share with you this morning is that the church is a battleship, not a cruise ship. Now, I've never been on a cruise before, but I've heard the stories. Everything you can imagine is there. All the food you want to enjoy, the entertainment, the luxury. It's just a a pleasurable vacation. If you need it, just ask for it. You get on the boat and everything is to serve you. I've been guilty of thinking the church was like that. When I walk in the door, it's about my needs, being served. What is the church doing for me? What did I get out of the service today? You ever been in that boat before? Sorry, pun intended. But the church is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Not served in the military. Not been on a battleship. I did tour the USS Alabama. That was pretty neat. But what I understand about a battleship is that it's very different from a cruise ship. You see, when you walk onto a battleship, you don't walk on there to be served. You walk on there to give your highest abilities. Because at any moment, you can be engaged in warfare. Every person has a responsibility. And if you don't do your job, it could result in catastrophic failure and loss. What if our mindset changed when we gathered together as God's people that we're not coming to be a part of a cruise ship to have all of our needs met, but we're coming to be a part of a battleship where we all have a responsibility because we're engaging in spiritual warfare. And I also think it changes our mindset in this regard. If you were to be on a battleship and you were to be engaged in battle on a daily basis, when you gather together as a crew and as members of that ship and you are worn down and you are discouraged from the battle, would any body offer any kind of negative judgment? Like what in the world? Why would you ever get discouraged on a battleship? Who are you? Do you belong here? Nobody would think that way because everybody's worn down by the battle. Everybody's experiencing the same emotions because we're fighting for our lives here and it's exhausting and we're on alert 24-7 and we're just waiting on the attack and we've got to be prepared at all moments of every day. And there are times that we've got to gather together as God's people and say, are you struggling? Me too. There is no judgment here because we're not on a cruise ship. If you get on a cruise ship and you're like, I'm struggling a little bit, what are you struggling with? All of your needs are being met. But if you're on a cruise, if you're on a battleship and you say, I'm a little worn down, I've been wounded by the enemy, I've taken a blow, then we gather around and we encourage and we bind up and we pray over that person. And there is no judgment because we're in a battle and casualties happen. People are going to get hurt because we're in a battle against an enemy who is incredibly strong. And there's no judging on a battleship because we all gather around and we say, me too. I'm exhausted. I'm worn down. The enemy got the best of me this week. Deceived me. I gave in again. And as a church, we just go, yeah, the struggle's real. We get it. 
It's not that we've been there. It's that we are there. We're all living in it. Because to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. We're all there, folks. If today you realize you've actually been fighting for the enemy and you want to switch sides, God's given us this beautiful moment called baptism that yes, it's the place where our sins are washed away. Yes, it's the place where we put on Christ, but it's also a declaration of allegiance where we are swapping sides from the forces of darkness and the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to receive that forgiveness, to receive God's grace and mercy so that he can wash our sins away, so that we can make that bold declaration of faith, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's not just a statement saying, I understand in my head, but in my heart, my allegiance is no longer to this world. It's no longer to uh, the forces of darkness. My allegiance is to King Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And from this day on, I will forever live for and fight for the kingdom of God, not fighting for my victory, but fighting from the victory that has been fought for me. Folks, the battle is real, but the war has already been won. If you're worn down today, we want you to know this is a safe place to ask for prayer. We'll gather around you. Our shepherds will be up front and in the back. As a body of believers, we just want to cover you with strength. And we want to cover ourselves with strength. Because when we walk out these doors, wherever life leads you, don't misunderstand. You're walking into a fight, a fight against evil. But we have the word of God, the spirit of God, the power of God, and the people of God on our side. If you're ready to give your life to Christ in baptism, there's nothing greater we can celebrate today than to see you reborn in the grace of God and to declare your allegiance to the kingdom of God. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please let us know as we stand and sing.